The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Who issued Captain Bowen's orders? They originated with Bradshaw at Colonial Office, and of course you signed them. You examined the signatures? Well, naturally, and I countersign. I signed no such order, Fred, neither have I seen such an order from the Colonial Office. Well, well, those signatures must have been forged. We can't exclude the possibility, with one exception, of course. Your signature was genuine, wasn't it? Someone had to take the responsibility, sir. And you took it. Now you've got it. What do you propose to do with it? Had a boat. Had Olympia. She's not going to Hamburg. She's probably heading for Palestine. Undoubtedly. Telephone control. Tell them to block the harbor. Take a look at the situation yourself. Very well, sir. May I have the microphone? Attention, Olympia. Attention out there. This is Major Corvo speaking. Attention, Olympia. You have no chance to escape. The destroyer Zebra is moving into position to block the harbor entrance. Return to dock. Otherwise, we will board you. Have you heard me, Olympia? You are bound for Palestine with an American captain and crew and a passenger manifest of 611 persons. We are carrying 200 pounds of dynamite in the engine room with fuses attached. We've had one British soldier step aboard this ship and we'll blow her up. Have you heard me, Major? Message received. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, July 14, 2011. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we'll be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Welcome once again to another edition of Just Right, where the number to call is always 519-661-3600 if you want to join in on the conversation today, and we're going to have an interesting one, I believe. Or you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, as some of you have been doing lately, and we really love to hear from you. There's more of you listening all the time, and I think a lot of you telling us that you really like the show. Have an interesting theme for you today. I guess we could call it blockades to peace, and we'd have to be talking about Israel and Palestine and the whole situation in the Middle East, but with a local connection. Just wanted to start off by saying, you know, in its July fifth, twenty eleven lead editorial, the National Post condemned the comparison of the recent Gaza flotilla attempt as being, quote, the spiritual heir to the 1947 refugee ship Exodus, which was filled with European Jews who survived the Holocaust. And such specious moral equivalence constitutes an insult to the historical record, end quote, they write. Well, setting that historical and moral record right is part of what we're going to attempt to do today through the greater issue of what in, in the end is, of course, the morally right thing to do at any point in history. And as to the question of the whole state of Israel and the reasons for it coming into existence, we'll be talking about that today. I would recommend you take a check and and check out the movie, the 1960 epic by uh, Otto Preminger, Exodus, which is fictional history, or fictional, yeah, I guess you call it fictional history, 
but uh, the history. It's based on history, but yes. it is a fictional approach, yeah. And, uh, you know, Robert and I, we covered the last flotilla attempt on our own last year, and this year to help us in our understanding of the background and many of the essential issues surrounding this never-ending debate, we are joined in studio by Mark Vandermoss. Mark, how are you? I'm awesome today. Thank you so much for having me back. Yeah, I really appreciate your, uh, it. Our pleasure. Third, third time back now, eh? I, I think it is. Yes, and uh, you're a founder of the Caledonia Victims Project, and now you're founding a group called, what is it called? It's called Blue Berets for Peace, and it's based on the vigil that I've been doing out on Oxford Street in London for the last 22 days now. Now, I imagine a lot of people have to have been driving by you over those past 22 days and wondering, who is that weirdo sitting out there in the street? Uh, well, here he is, folks, <laughs> if you want to <laughs> talk to him, and you might want to hear what his message is. Tell me the story. Why are you there, Mark? Um, well, you know, I, I've worn my blue beret. I, I'm a former UN peacekeeper. I've served in the Middle East in 1978. I've climbed Mount Sinai on Easter Sunday I've, uh, to watch the sun come up. I've swum in the Sea of Galilee. I've stood on the hill of Megiddo, where uh, the final days are supposed to occur. And more importantly, I've driven through uh, the buffer zone. I was stationed in Egypt, and I used to have to travel through the buffer zone. Um, uh, on our way, we would go to on R&R &R, uh, uh, through into Israel. I've traveled through the Gaza Strip uh, before the, uh, the brutal civil war, before the takeover of Hamas. I've seen the burned-out tanks in the desert, and I've driven through the minefields. I've seen... I've seen the aftermath of of war. What 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 things look like when the rule of law is gone. So I've always had a passion uh, for the issue uh, since coming home. Uh, for the last five years, I've been engaged in trying to restore the rule of law in Caledonia, as you well know, um, and that's taken up much of my time. And while I've been doing that, of course, I, I, I monitor the news on, in, on Israel, and I've been very growingly concerned about the anti-Israel uh, hysteria that's being whipped up um, by the radical left who really don't want to tell two sides of the story. And so I finally decided, I got so angry one day, I simply had to put on my blueberry again. I drove all the way from London into Toronto to attempt to stand with some Jews in front of the Israeli consulate um, who were there uh, uh, as a counter-protest to a, a Palestinian uh, protest uh, against what they were calling Nakba Day, which is the disaster, um, which was Israel's creation. And now I went on to the coalition. Now, now, now you yourself, are you Jewish? No. No, uh, I, I've, I've been asked that question by well-meaning people. Uh, and well, and I say, you know what, I, I'm just a human being who doesn't think that uh, it's right to use violence against innocent people. So that's how I would describe myself. Uh, so so uh, I went on to the Coalition Against Israeli Apartheid website to check this out for myself. And I was actually, I was really shocked and I was really angry because, you know, if a naive reader, a student, whoever, somebody who didn't understand the issues, went on that website, they would have think, thought some dirty, stinking, filthy, thieving Jews woke up one morning and, and decided to steal a bunch of land from some innocent people and keep, hang on to it. So I said, well, that's not true. So I put on my bray, drove, to, London, drove to, uh, to Israel, stood there, and this little Jewish lady standing beside me, and she says, what's that hat you're wearing? I said, well, I was a, a peacekeeper in the Middle East uh, with the United Nations. And she said, oh, what are you doing here? I said, well, I'm here to remind people of two important facts. Number one, that Israel is actually one of the most legitimate countries in the world because it was created by a 1947 United Nations vote of the, of the UN General Assembly um, that partitioned the area into a Jewish state and a Palestinian state. Uh, and, um, and the other fact was that the, the Hamas charter 
uh, has actually been condemned by the UN Human Rights Council in 2006 for calling for the killing of Jews and, and the obliteration of Israel. And, uh, you know, what people don't understand is, I mean, the, the Coalition Against Israeli Apartheid didn't bother to mention that the day after uh, Israel was created on May 14th, 48, they were attacked by five Arab armies who did not want to accept a, a, a two-state solution and in violation of international law attempted to wipe Israel off the map. And, uh, of course, in 1967, uh, they tried to do it again. And that's when Israel captured the uh, the West Bank. And that's how they came into possession of it. It wasn't uh, by colonialism. And then they tried to wipe them out again in 73. Uh, and that didn't work. So here we are. So that's 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 how I ended up putting the Blue Beret on uh, uh, to to raise awareness of the of the facts about this issue. Now, why did you pick your particular method of doing this and your location where you are? Uh, well, the, I, I had, uh, discovered there's a blogger named Blazing Cat for, uh, who does a lot of investigative work, uh, uh, on, on the issues of, uh, uh, Islamism and, uh, you know, related issues. And he revealed, uh, evidence that showed that, uh, the London Muslim Mosque had, uh, had helped raise money, um, for the Canadian boat to Gaza, uh, and that they'd sent their operations manager, uh, uh, on, as a delegate on the boat. Uh, now they deny that he's the operate that they don't deny that he was the operations manager, but they don't say that they don't, uh, they're not, a, they're not saying that he, they're saying that they didn't know mm -hmm. that he was going to go on the trip before he left. Um, now, uh, so I'm sitting here thinking, you know what, here in London, we have a religious institution. And frankly, I don't care whether it was a mosque, um, or a synagogue or, or a Christian church raising money. Uh, for a mission, which if successful, is going to result, I mean, the, the mission of this thing is to break a weapons blockade against Hamas um, that is keeping them from, from attacking and mm. killing innocent Jews. And the problem with that is not only will a bunch of innocent Jews die uh, if Hamas gets more weapons, a whole bunch of Palestinians are going to die in the crossfire if Israel has to defend herself. So I'm not here really, you know, the Jews are very, Jewish people have told me they're very grateful for what I'm doing, but I say, you know, I'm not defending you, I'm defending the truth. And as a United Nation, former UN peacekeeper, I also have to speak up for the Palestinian victims who are going to be victims of these war crimes. Because um, well, that's, a, that's, a, that's a very, uh, I like that, that spin on it. And just to be fair though, yeah. um, Adib Hassan, chairman of the London Mosque's board of directors, has refuted that they've actually raised funds. They simply rented the premises to the promoters. Oh, yes, I've heard that argument. And um, what I did is on my blog, I posted, I mean, if that's, if he's distancing himself from the issue, I mean, that that's, you know, well, first of all, I'm not sure how that makes it right. I mean, if uh, you're, you're a church and you're raising, and you're allowing somebody to use your building for a project that ultimately is going to result in weapons getting to a terrorist organization, if, you, if anybody thinks that's okay, I, that's fine. Mm -hmm. I don't. I also, uh, after that article was published, um, I said, okay, well, that's fine. I mean, if that's really, if the mosque really wants to distance itself from it, I put on my blog, I've, and it's right at the top, I would cancel the Blue Beret protest, provided that, one, they issue a statement that the mosque doesn't support the Canadian boat to Gaza mission to break the blo Israeli blockade of weapons. Two, the mosque regrets that its facility was used as a tool to raise money for the Canadian boat to Gaza mission. The mosque fully endorses the UN, the 2006 UN Res Human Rights Council condemnation of the Hamas charter. And finally, that the mosque fully accepts Israel's right to exist as a Jewish state. Now, if they don't have any problems with that, I'm 
I would have called it off right then and there. Well, before we go on, I understand we have caller Stuart on the line. Stuart, are you there? Good morning. Hello. Good morning. Good morning, Stuart. How are you? Hi, Mark. Stuart is a member of the Never Again group. Ah. Um, they're a, they're a, they're an Israeli Israel activist group, uh, uh, advocacy group uh, out of Hamilton. Uh, they're made up of Jews and non-Jews. I don't want to take away his thunder, but they've uh, they've come out. To, I'm very grateful. They've come. Their members have come up now to London three times to support this. Uh, Excellent. The are, visual. Are you in London today, Stuart? I'm at home in Burlington on oh. this gorgeous sunny day. Excellent. And what what did you have for us today? Well, I just called this to uh, offer words of support for Mark and his project. Um, um, four or five members of the Never Again group uh, have traveled to London uh, on several occasions to support him um, picketing outside the London Mosque. And uh, most recently, on Tuesday this week, we were outside of the uh, London Free Press office, uh, the London Free Press having published, uh, to, by my way of thinking, and as of Tuesday, only puffball pieces on the uh, about the, the journey of this trip to uh, to Gaza. But um, there are there are issues, and there are issues. They just overlap, and it's like drop, dropping a pebble in a pond. The ripples go in so many different places. The ramifications. Of, of what seems to be or, or could be seen as a very local issue to London uh, actually covers a, an enormous amount of ground. And more and more, I realize the relevance of of these issues to to this country that we love so much. Now, I'm 59 years old. I'm a musician. Uh, I've had a very, very easy and privileged life. Uh, I, I didn't get to storm the beaches on Normandy, and I haven't made a contribution to my country or to to these uh, values that have meant so much to me. But uh, this is my way of making a small start. How did you find your experience in London? Were people treating you well? I'm glad you asked that because um, in the I think two and a quarter, two and three quarter hours we spent in the two locations on Tuesday. Uh, we actually made a hobby of counting. There were 39 sort of thumbs-up, friendly horn, uh, horn-blowing incidents, you know, uh, people waving, mm-hmm. and two negative reactions, neither of which I saw. But this is consistent with uh, the two or three other occasions when I was with Mark just in front of the mosque, uh, an overwhelming preponderance of positive... That seems to um, fly in the face of what... what what we're hearing from the free press in the sense of there's no public interest or support in this issue. It may be what they're talking about. There's no interest in their side of the issue. <laughs> well, maybe, they're, maybe they think Londoners have, have very tender sensibilities, but um, clearly there's a lot of support for, for if I may say, uh, another viewpoint. Well, thank you so much for calling today, Stuart. Thank you. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Stuart. Bye-bye. We'll, we'll take a quick break here, and what you'll be hearing just next in this break is an outtake from uh, the movie Exodus 1960, put together by Otto Preminger. <coughs> and uh, this is a little bit of the sort of the history and the morality behind the issue, and when we return, we'll pick up on well, this before issue. We, before oh, we okay. go to the clip, though, yeah. I wonder if sure. a, a little bit of an introduction to the clip is in order. Okay. I don't know if people realize that right now, while... Israelis have a blockade of Gaza. This movie, Exodus, portrays a a time in history when the British actually blockaded Palestine, and the target of their their blockade was Jews. That's correct. Jews wanting to emigrate from Europe to Palestine, 
and the British actually prevented them from doing so in the movie. And that's why the National Post pointed out that comparison <laughs> and that they're trying to hog that, that history of it. Right. So if people are thinking about blockades, here's another blockade for you to consider. I saw the people on that ship. They're not dangerous. They're just poor, miserable people. Why can't you let them go? You must understand that we British have shown throughout our history an extraordinary talent for troubles and commitments. Palestine's a British mandate, imposed upon us by the League of Nations, which makes us responsible for keeping peace in the area. The Arabs simply won't keep the peace if we allow further Jewish immigration. I don't know much about the mandate, but I do know the Jews were promised a homeland in Palestine. During the First World War, Britain needed and accepted Jewish support from all over the world. But in return, the Balfour Declaration of 1917 made such a promise. Well, that promise was reconfirmed during World War II. This chap Ben Kingham probably wasn't lying when he said he fought with us. Thousands of Palestinians did. How can you promise something and then not deliver it? England was fighting for her life in 1917. Nations are better like people in such circumstances. They make promises they're not immediately able to fulfill. During that same crisis, we made the Arabs certain assurances. Hence, they have their claims too. The Arabs are fanatics on the subject of Jewish immigration. Just now, we need their goodwill. How is it ever going to end? I don't know. The whole question now is before the United Nations. I hope they solve it. The sooner I stop operating detention camps, the happier I'll be. That goes for every British officer and soldier I know. Thank you. Yes? The devil. Of course. Send the boat alongside at once. I'll join you in ten minutes. They want to send 23 people back to Cariolos. The rest have declared a hunger strike. British will give in. We'll give in first. These meals. Maybe they think they've been hungry once in a while. They don't even begin to know what real starvation is. Dove, if you hate these people so much, why do you want to go to Palestine with them? Because they're Jews fight instead of talk. When I get there, I'm going to join the Irgun. They know how to do it. I'm going to blow up every British installation I can find. I'm going to kill Englishmen. Kill and kill and kill them. Till they won't be anymore, that's all. The British aren't all bad, darling. They're rotten, a whole bunch of them. All the British, all the Russians, all the Poles and all... Not the Danes when I was no, there. No, the Danes too, don't tell me. That's not true. The Hansons were Christians and they adopted me. An exception, one little exception that proves something. There are lots of exceptions. You used to listen to me for a minute, Dov. When the Nazis marched into Denmark, they ordered every Jew to wear a yellow armband with the Star of David on it. And That's when the they... worst thing that can happen to a Jew? I said, listen, you don't know what you're talking about. And the next morning, when every Jew in Denmark had to wear his armband, 
King Christian came out of Amalienberg Palace for his morning ride. And do you know something? He wore the Star of David on his arm. But why should you... And do you know something else? By afternoon, everybody was wearing Stars of David. The Jews and the Danes and, well, just everybody. Why they do that? If you... If you don't just know why they did it, Dolph, well, maybe that's what's wrong with you. And welcome back to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Thank you, Bob. <laughs> uh, we're joined in studio with Mark Vandermoss of the Blue Berets. And um, Mark is holding a peace vigil, if you will, a protest outside of the London Mosque here on Oxford Street. And um, before we went to the break, we had a call from uh, Stuart of the Never Again Group. And uh, also there's been support from Gary McHale, a friend of uh, Mark's and also integral into the uh, Caledonia affair. And Gary wrote a letter. Do you want to talk talk to the, talk to that point, uh, Mark? Sure, uh, I'd love to. Um, what's happened uh, in the you know since this thing started? Um, I was contacted by a London Free Press reporter uh, who was writing a st- who who you know, and I shared some of the evidence about the mosque connections to this Canadian boat. I told him about, uh, the, you know, the, the fact that uh, there was no humanitarian crisis in Gaza, according to the, uh, the Red Cross there in Gaza. I pointed him to, um, to the place on my website in my media release that has all the citations. I don't just make blind assertions. I provide the proof uh, right back to source documents. And uh, the next day, uh, a puff piece appeared um, for the two Londoners uh, that are sent on the delegate uh, as delegates on this hero- heroic mission to break a blockade so Hamas can get weapons. Um, no mention of the lack of humanitarian crisis, no, la- no mention of the vigil. Um, I was then, uh, the London Free Press then sent out a reporter that interviewed us um, um, uh, later, I think it was the next week. She took pictures, uh, she took a lot of background, she seemed very interested, and, uh, but again, no story. Um, I contacted the, uh, the editor. I said, you know, you know, I trying to be non-confrontational. I just wanted to say, look, you know, are you guys going to do something on this? In the meantime, they published a new version of the first story that added some lobball questions to these, to these, uh, so-called delegates in Greece. Um, nothing again about the, about the vigil. Um, and, um, and uh, then they published a third article, another, an even, you know, a, an even more, uh, a bigger puff piece called London Area Supporters Raise More Than $60,000 in Aid. And add Aid for Gaza, Londoners are among the Canadian contingent bound for the trouble region. Again, no mention of the Blueberry vi- Vigil, no mention, uh, you know, uh, uh, of the basic facts, no mention of the, the connection to the mosque. So um, uh, I was not impressed. Um, so I, uh, I, I threw back channels. Uh, I was contacted by, I actually got a reply from the London Free Press, uh, the, the editor, and uh, essentially said, uh, he went back to the reporters, and it was their, their conclusion, his conclusion, that there was just no community interest in this story. I mean, okay, so we have Jews, non-Jews, Christians, non-Christians, driving from as far away to Hamilton to stand in front of the London Mosque, to raise basic awareness about the creation of the state of Israel and the facts behind the connection to this particular religious institution raising money for this project. And that was not news, apparently, to them. Um, once I wrote about that, 
I was contacted by a former journalist named Layla Paul, who's a broadcast journalist uh, in a former life, and she provided me her emails, and uh, in which uh, in which the editor is telling uh, telling her that uh, he he won't publish, he doesn't want to publish her op-ed uh, because he he wants to meet to, with the Muslim community first. And I'm thinking, who's in charge of editorial policy at the London Free Press? This is very troubling to me that we can't talk about these issues. And um, well, was that was that his concern, or was his concern to get balance on the story and maybe hear their side of the story before he went ahead? Well, you know what, uh, it wasn't publishing anything for me. So so uh, I, that's true. Uh, <laughs> I don't understand. I mean, if it, when the Muslim community wants to write an editorial, do they then go meet with representatives from the non-Muslim community? to get a rebuttal in advance. I, I just can't, I, I just don't, I'm not sure that that's great. I, you know, it may, be, may sound great, but I'm not sure it's, it's great. So what happened was, uh, obviously, uh, the editor was, and rightly so, quite, you know, possibly, uh, he was very upset with the fact that uh, both Layla and I had revealed, uh, you know, our, our correspondence. Um, and, uh, you know, it's something I've never done before. We, we've worked with journalists for five years in Caledonia. We know how important they are when, they're the, when they serve as their role as the watchdogs of, society, of democracy. But in this case, um, I had to make a decision, weigh the consequences. Do we remain silent on this issue? He also made it clear to me, in both my, uh, in particularly mine, um, that they're worried, in, in also to me and to Layla, that they were concerned that the Muslim community was going to be upset. I mean, and and that was part of the issue. And they're being, I think his words to me were, they were being very circumspect because tensions are high. So they didn't want to print the pro-Israel side of the story. Are they saying, for example, that it's okay for the Jewish community to be upset, but not okay for the Muslim community well, to apparently, be upset? Well, apparently they are. And, and i gotta, I got to say this. I mean, i I got to read this to you. This, is written, this was written from the Birmingham jail in 1963 by Martin Luther King. And he said, you know, you talk about raising tensions in a community by printing the truth. I mean, that, that is outrageous. And, and here's what he said. Well, this is 50 years truth ago. Truth is what'll do it. <laughs> he said, actually... We who engage in nonviolent direct action are not the creators of tension. We merely bring to the surface the hidden tension that is already alive. We bring it out into the open where it can be seen and dealt with like a boil that can never be cured so long as it is covered up, but must be opened up with all its ugliness to the natural medicines of air and light. Injustice must be exposed with all the tension its exposure creates to the light of human conscience and the air of national opinion before it can be cured. That's and very I th- appropriate. And I think that's the role of, of, of a newspaper. That, that is their role. It's not their role to judge who's going to be upset, uh, who might be offended. It's their job to report the news because I'm going to tell you, the tension is already there. I've talked to the Jews. Jews are afraid. I've talked to a Jew, uh, Jewish fellow who stopped me. He's discriminated uh, when he goes into the store. The, some, some Muslims have treated him rudely. I've talked to a, a, a graduate of University of Waterloo, uh, Western Ontario here who says Jewish students have been intimidated. I've talked to, to, to members of the Jewish community who are, who are just afraid to come out and simply exercise their right to speak out about about an institution raising funds for this project to get weapons to Now, them. how does uh, Gary McHale's okay. letter come into this? Well, that's and exactly. You got... You, came in just at the right time. So Gary, Gary um, emailed uh, uh, the editor and said, listen, you know, uh, what if, what if uh, I could ask, I'll ask Mark to call off, his, call off, um, um, uh, cancel protest. a protest, because I'd called for a protest uh, at the London Free Press. Uh, and Gary wrote to him and said, look, what if I, what if I uh, ask Mark to call off the protest if you publish an op-ed? 
And so uh, I guess uh, Rizzuti said, well, I'll think about it. So by the time he said, he would let us know on Monday. So they let us, uh, so they, uh, he got back to us and he refused to uh, publish this op-ed. Uh, and it was just setting out the basic facts. So once again, we have a clear bias against telling the pro-Israel side. Okay, we're going to cut to a break in a moment. But um, when we come back from it, I think I'm going to read a couple of paragraphs from Mr. McHale's letter, which I think are has to be read out there because of the the nature of the protest and the nature of the Gaza flotilla. As I'm very fond of the old man, one of the best. Makes it all the more difficult to explain his, well, you might call it his little quirk. Quirk? Yes, about the Jews. Oh, you caught it all right. I was watching. Almost makes one believe the story one hears every now and then. Probably nonsense, of course, but still. What story? That if you gave a good shake to his family tree, you'd find a Jew up there. (laughs) When are you going to stop this thing and let them go? Unfortunately, I can't answer that. The affair's entirely in the hands of London. But you don't like what's going on. You know how wrong it is. Why don't you say so? Why don't you make a public statement about it? I can't do that, Kitty. I'm a soldier. I know you're a soldier. But you're also a Jew. And all those people out there are Jews, too. I don't like to disappoint you, Kitty, but I'm not in any degree a Jew. But I thought... I know the rumor. Apparently there had to be some explanation for my attitude towards this unpleasant business. Oh, I'm sorry for flying off like that. You're getting to be quite a Zionist. As a matter of fact, I'm glad you did fly off. You asked how I, as a Jew, could let this happen to other Jews. Now I find myself asking, how can any man let it happen? Jew, Gentile, Buddhist, Mohammedan. No matter what he is. Boys and girls, when I came to Palestine 47 years ago, it was not a musical reception with little cakes served. I came walking with my little brother all the way from Russia. And over in that valley, the swamps, mosquitoes so big they were picking fights with the sparrows. (laughs) Now we have changed those swamps into such fields. On a quiet night, you can hear the corn grow. With oranges so big, five already make a dozen. Over there, you see the Arab village of Abu Yasha. In those days, my old friend Kamal, may God rest his soul, was Mukhtar of the village. And then one day, he donated to us this ground on which you stand for a youth village. So, we began to build this place. And again, it wasn't a matter of little cakes and music. It meant more sweat, more work. Look about you. You will see Arab children here. Three of them, grandsons of that same Kamal, the Mukhtar, who gave us this land. It grieves me that he isn't with us today to see all this. But he's been gathered to the bosom of Allah. Speak always that name with respect. With us instead, we have the son of Kamal, Taha, an honor to his father's memory. 
raised part of the time in my house with my own dear son, Ari, and with my dear daughter, Jordana, who sits beside him in this place. Now, I want you to give particular attention to what he's going to tell to you. Here is Taha, son of Kamal, since five years, Mukhtar of Abu Yesha. Thank you, Barack Benkin. Village President, Dr. Ernst Lieberman. In this valley of Jazreel, we, we dwell together as friends. It is natural that we should live in peace, since even our words for it are almost exactly the same. We say, Salam, and you, Shalom. Let us seal our friendship forever with that most beautiful of Hebrew toasts, Lachaim, to life. Lachaim! And welcome back to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where you can give us a call at 519-661-3600 if you'd like to join in on the conversation. You can also check us out online at justrightmedia.org. And, of course, the station's website is chrwradio.com. Another link that you may be interested in is that of Mark Vandermoss's Blue Berets for Peace. You can find a synopsis of every day of his vigil, outside at the London Mosque here on Oxford Street at uh, www.blueberet.ca. Now, from there, you can also find a link to the letter that Gary McHale wrote to the Free Press, but which was denied submission or denied publication. Um, So you can read the contents of that letter there. I think that you'll find it very interesting, and then so much so that I'm going to take two paragraphs out of it and, and read them to you here. The first one has to deal with the fact that, contrary to those who would like to break the blockade of Gaza, there is no humanitarian disaster in that strip of land. And this is what Gary McHale had to write. While there are true humanitarian disasters in the world, Gaza is not one of those places. In April 2011, Matilda Redma- uh, Redmat, deputy head of the Red Cross, stated, and he's quoting here, There is no humanitarian crisis in Gaza. Recent news stories tell of how Gaza is uh, is opening luxury hotels, a large water park, schools, large malls, and uh, how food is abundant. Khalil Hamada, a senior Hamas official with Gaza's Ministry of Justice, stated in June 2010, quote, there is no starvation in Gaza, no one has died of hunger. And the letter goes on to, to, to describe the fact that There is no humanitarian crisis in Gaza, which begs the question, why break the blockade? And is also begging the question, why is there a blockade? The response, of course, is that Israel is trying to defend itself from people who would bring weapons into this this, um, strip of land, not aid. And what, you know what's really interesting about that is if you if you go to uh, go to the press release that uh, you can access uh, through through the site, um, I have links to the Israeli government website that that lists all of the statistics of food uh, getting through there, and there's also documentation from the U- United Nations Relief Works Agency uh, and the World Health Organization talking about. Um, the obesity rates, you know, the high obesity rates in, in Gaza as well, especially compared to, to Israel. Um, you know, you can see the pictures, uh, you know, there are pictures available uh, through there uh, of, uh, you know, Brian on Brian Lilly's site from Sun Media uh, talking about where they're showing these kids in this massive water park. I, I've never seen anything like it. So, mm-hmm. A part of um, Gary's letter as well is uh, 
He talks about a man named Gary Jarofsky, who's actually part of the Never Again group that we talked about earlier in the show. He writes, Gary Jarofsky, a Jew who traveled from Hamilton to lend his support, said, quote, let's step back for a moment and conduct a reality check. When the 8,000 to 10,000 Jewish inhabitants were pulled out of Gaza by Israel to allow the 1.5 million Muslims a Jew-free terror enclave, his words, Israel expected the move would create an opportunity for peace. Instead, the Palestinians destroyed their economy by destroying greenhouses that were left behind because they were built by Jews. They also got involved in a bloody civil war over power between the two main factions, Hamas and Fatah, with the more extremist and militant Hamas the victor. So I think if there's any real humanitarian problem in Gaza, it's of their own making, and certainly not of the Israelis. By the way, I have here from the National Post of June 13, another reference from a letter writer on that same issue, who writes that in advance of the August 2005 Israeli withdrawal from Gaza, former World Bank President James Wolfenstein personally donated $500,000 as part of a $14 million charitable donation from American Jews. The money went to purchase over 3,000 Jewish-owned greenhouses in Gaza, which were given to the Arabs, in order to support their nascent agricultural sector. In the first week following withdrawal, the Arab populace celebrated their increased autonomy by descending upon those greenhouses and tearing them to shreds. Absolute insanity. Well, well, you, I think you've really hit on on a real key issue here. And if there's one message that we have to we have to get across, it's this. I I told you I've driven through the Gaza Strip, and I've driven through, and I and and I saw the poverty in the Arab sections, and then I drive through the Israeli section, and there's all lush and greenhouses. I said, wow, why couldn't they work together? Now, I climb Mount Sinai on Easter Sunday. Now, that's, I, a, that's a good question, because in the opening clip to this sec- segment, we had that dream that sounded oh. like, was that ever really a dream? Did that no, really I, exist? No, I, I think it's a dream on the part of the Israelis, but this is, this is the point. Um, you know, I climbed Mount Sinai on Easter Sunday in 1978 to watch the sun come up. That was under Israeli control. It had a lot of oil in the Sinai Peninsula. It's huge. They captured it in the 67 war. They gave it all back for a peace agreement with Egypt, which is which has stood to this day. They gave back Gaza and were rewarded with thousands and thousands of rockets. So for anybody to suggest that Israel isn't willing to give give up land for peace, um, that is just silly. The real problem is has nothing to do with the land. It's as I, as I wrote to a, let, a letter that was published in the Hamilton Spectator recently. Um, the problem isn't land. The issue is this rabid genocidal Jew hate that these that these people are inculcating in their children. Now, if anybody wants to understand just how terrible it is, what what's going on there, go to a site. It's it's run by Palestinian Media Watch. It's palwatch.org. Palwatch.org. And what they do is they monitor official Palestinian sources. And you will see a steady diet from from not only from Hamas, but also from the Palestinian Authority, talk, inculcating this hatred in their school books. I mean, I'll give you just two examples. Um, there's one video of a Hamas MP saying that the Jews were brought to Palestine for the great massacre in preparation for the, the United States of Islam. You have them glorifying terrorists, the Munich massacre, and you also have even Mahmoud Abbas, who the naive would like to believe is moderate, telling the uh, the Arab League in 2010, hey, if you want to go to war against Israel, we're, we're willing to do it, but we're not strong enough. We're not going to do it without you. So the issue is has nothing at all to do with land. If you can, and that, and unfortunately that makes it very difficult to solve because when you, ha- when you are breeding hatred into people, 
you know, you had you had a you had a family in Israel murdered, slaughtered. They went in, they slit the baby's throat, and they killed. I think it was three or four members of the family. It's called the Fogel family. Afterwards, thirty percent of Palestinians were thought that was the right thing to do. Now we have to stop the cycle. So how we do? How do we do that in a little small way? We start right here, and we say. First of all, let's get the facts on the table. Everybody wants to ignore that 1947 resolution, but we have to respect the rule of law. Let's start there. Perfect place to break, because we're going to hear a little bit about that 1947 resolution coming up in this next clip. And when we come back, I want to speak to that greater issue of why the Jews find themselves in this situation all the time. I think the issue is bigger than just a hatred of Jews. And I'd like to throw my idea at you because I found a few things that I have been saying over over some time on this show, and I'd like to see perhaps what your reflection on my Great. comment might be. Awesome. We'll be back right after this. Norway votes for partition. Pakistan against. Okay, how is it now? talk to the Israeli ambassador. I think not, Prime Minister. <laughs> I want to talk to the Israeli ambassador. If I may say so, Prime Minister, it would be rather unwise. Look, can you hear me? Watch my lips. I want to talk to the Israeli ambassador. <laughs> of course, Prime Minister, if that is your wish, I will contact the Foreign Secretary and Sir Richard and then telephone the Israeli ambassador. I don't want the Foreign Secretary, I don't want Sir Richard, I just want the ambassador. Prime Minister, I must advise you that it would be most improper to see him without the Foreign Secretary present. Why? What do you think I want to talk to the ambassador about? Well, presumably the vote at the UN. Really? That would be most improper. Oh. My daughter Lucy wishes to spend her next long vacation on a kibbutz. Or perhaps I should say she's at the University of Sussex, another kibbutz. <laughs> the ambassador and I were at the LSE together. So I thought I'd invite him along to the flat tonight for a drink. 6pm would be convenient. 
See to it, would you look? Yes, Prince. Don't let it upset you, Jim. We're used to it. It happens all the time. I told them to abstain. Well, it's well known that in the British Foreign Office, an instruction from the Prime Minister becomes a request from the Foreign Secretary, then a recommendation from the Minister of State, and finally just a suggestion to the Ambassador, if it ever gets that far. Thank you. Bechai. And welcome back to Just Right, where we are joined in studio by Mark Vandermas, who's holding a lonely vigil out on Oxford Street in front of the mosque there. And Mark, I wanted to bounce a little theory off on you here. I've been following this issue for quite some time, and it's, it occurs to me that, that everything about the Jewish question is not so much that Jew, Jews are hated, not really for what or who they are, but I think it's for what they seem to represent to some people. And I think the problem is bigger than the Jewish question. And it's also bigger than the Arab-Israeli question. Because here I've got an article, United Church wants to go out there and defend uh, the, boy, the Israeli boycott, at least certain people within the United Church. And we see anti-Semitism growing threat on campuses. But you know what else we see? Anti-Americanism, a growing threat on campuses at Western, right here. It says so in this uh, news feature editor. I think I got that right out of uh, the paper here, the Gazette. Now, here's what's interesting. Listen to the reason why one person from the United Church is defending their targeting of Israel as opposed to leaving all the totalitarian countries alone. Like Syria? Yeah. So why a boycott of Israel? Answer, number one, because Israel purports to be a democracy. Now, let me put that aside. Why does this embassy official who comes to the University of Ottawa here feel so, um, you know, feel all that anti-Americanism? Because everyone's criticizing America's human rights record because America is a democracy. Now, what I've been saying over the years is that the only reason the good countries get criticized all the time is because they are good. That's what Ayn Rand used to say all the time. They're, they're, they're criticized because they have a, a, a moral base. Whereas the other countries, you know, when Russia was slaughtering millions and they cut down their slaughters by two million, we said, oh, yay, good thing for Russia. But if that had happened here, if even 10 people were killed, we would have been condemning well, well, the double that country, oh, sorry, you see? It's more than a double standard. <laughs> well, well, the double standard is, is, really, is really interesting because um, we've run up against that in Caledonia. And what you have is, um, the, you know, you almost have, a, what I, I don't know, a worldwide movement made up of radical anarchists, some of the unionists, the anti-Israel groups that are trying to destabilize. Yeah, we we'll use with, the word left for all of them. That's the problem. And they're, <laughs> the what left. they're doing is they're using, like, like, let me give you a little bit of an overlap into, into Caledonia. What a lot of people do not understand is that the main agitators in Caledonia, I mean, yes, there, there, there are native extremists committing the crimes, but a lot of people don't understand that from to early 2006, there were, there were radical anarchists, unionists, uh, anti-Israel groups on site. Within two weeks of the occupation beginning, uh, members of the McMaster University Solidarity for Palestinian Human Rights were on the site. On May 3rd, 2006, the Niagara Palestinian Association raised the Palestinian flag over top of the occupation site alongside the, the flag of the, the Mohawk Warrior Crime Group. Um, and one of the spokespersons who was there and witnessed it described it uh, as follows. Uh, it was the proudest day of my life. Uh, when we were tired and exhausted, we would look up at, the f at our flags flying together and we would say, the wind would carry our colors from Jerusalem to the Grand River. Mm -hmm. 
Now, this spokesperson is named by the name of uh, J- Jamila Gadar. Um, she, I've got a nice picture of her and a story about her speaking in 2008 at a Coalition Against Israeli Apartheid event. And the Coalition Against Israeli Apartheid in 2007 attended the Cairo Conference. And that was put on, sponsored by the Muslim Brotherhood, where they met with representatives of, the, uh, of Hamas and Hezbollah. So what you have is you have clearly the very same people, the same people, the same groups that were de- trying to destabilize you further their anti-capitalist anarchist agenda in Caledonia by egging on natives who were go- who were, they were the ones getting arrested. Um, they are the very same ones that are are trying to destabilize use Israel and the Palestinian issue to create to further this anti-capitalist agenda. It, it's a very little known topic. I've ta- I, I've I spoke about it actually up in Ottawa at an event recently. So there's there's a lot of factors going on. So clearly you're aware of the same issue I'm bringing up then. Well, well exactly. It's anti-capitalism, anti-freedom um, being exhibited in the only places where it can be in those few and, and, three places and, on and earth. And they have one, th- one thing very, very much in common. Just as they never talk about the victims, the innocent victims of the lawlessness by their proxies. Okay, mm-hmm. so you have all these victims in Caledonia, some of whom are native, like two native. By the way, women what raped. do you think about the McGinty payout for the millions and millions to to the victims? Is the problem solved now? No, we're no. not solved now. Well, you know what? It's a process. You know, restoring justice, any struggle is is a, a process and not an event. This is a great event. Now we have to ask, okay, how do where are we going to go from here? But so you have these people, though, um, who have for five years have denied the humanity of the victims in Caledonia because of the color of their skin. And in the process, they also deny the humanity of the two Native women raped on that occupation site. So in the Middle East, you have the same activists denying not only the humanity of the Jewish victims of Hamas rockets that are deliberately targeted at civilian areas, you also have them denying the humanity of the Palestinian victims of Hamas. That is not acceptable. As a UN peacekeeper, I have to, uh, former, I have a duty to speak out for those people as well. Just as I went in Caledonia, I gave speech after speech. I talked about native victims in Caledonia since 2007. There has not been a single mainstream media outlet that's ever printed anything about it. And I gave a speech actually at Mount Royal University in Calgary. I've spoken about it. Uh, I've given them in public. And it's the same thing. The media does not want to tell that story. And when and that's what disturbs me so much when a major daily newspaper does not air I mean, what kind of values are we promoting? Are we promoting the idea that it's okay to use violence to kill innocent people? And well, that you understand is, the London Free Press, from my point of view, would be very leftist, which would explain all of those attitudes. Yeah, well, you think they'd also be in business to, to you know, you have to have a certain level of professionalism as well. But, One would expect. But even, listen, you know, <laughs> London Free Press. it's not, you know, we can't say, look, leftists, you know, I, I find it ironic that as conservatives, we're defending traditional level, liberal values of free speech, equality, uh, and, and even gay rights. I mean, you talk about uh, Israel. What drives me, I, I just can't figure this one out. How can any gay person... Um, not support Israel because it's the only country in the Middle East where they're actually allowed to exist. It's unbelievable. I, 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 you know, it, it's I don't know what a, to say to it. It's such a flagrant opposition to the reality of the situation and to the interests of the situation that, that you wonder what's wrong with these people. Like you wonder if they have a problem, <laughs> a if you know what I mean. Or something. And, and it's, so, it's so extreme, I, I just sit there in shock. 
we have this issue, this this new phenomenon of all these anti-Israeli um, events happening on campuses right across the country, as I hear. They call it Israeli apartheid. What yes, which is, which is nonsensical. And, and I'm thinking, should there not be, and why is there not, or maybe there is, and I don't hear about it because the media doesn't cover it, um, a counter-movement, a, 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 um, something going on on campuses that presents the facts. Well, I'm so glad you asked that question because <laughs> uh, I wasn't expecting you to. Uh, that's where the Blue Berets for Peace uh, idea came from. It grew out of the vigil. Um, there's a rabbi, uh, John Hausman, in the United States who's actually studied colloquial uh, Arabic in, in Egypt. He's very familiar with, with the issue, Middle Eastern issues. He's uh, studied international law. He's, uh, he has, I, I've met him before. He, he wants very much to come to Canada to speak with me about the concepts that we're taught, the Blue Beret concepts. Um, and I'm working on an idea now. What I'd like to do is establish um, kind of almost a speaking tour, if you will, called um, Israel, the case for the defense and go into universities uh, such as this one, go into York University um, and and talk about the case for Israel. I mean, you could talk, make a Christian case for it. You could make a, a case for, uh, for speaking out. We could also talk about how do you actually win the struggle, the propaganda value? How do you turn how do you win that? The, because Israel is, is, the problem with Israel is it's very, it's strong militarily, but it's being, it has been defeated, or not defeated, it's, it's, it's been attacked very viciously by propaganda. How do you win that? So how do you win that? Well, if you turn the traditional liberal institutions and values. You talk about the Charter of Rights. This is a civil rights issue. This is a rule of law issue. It's exactly like Caledon. You talk about the UN. You talk about Martin Luther King. I, listen, I'll tell you something. We, one of the greatest thrills of my life this year was earlier in January. I was on a website. I, I saw a YouTube video of an anarchist, an aboriginal slash anarchist conference. And in there, the, the people who have been uh, have been tried to paint us as white supremacists and destroy our work in Caledonia for peace, they're sit, they're actually talking about how they have to find a way to counter our application of Martin Luther King's te nonviolent teachings because we're making them look like racists, and we have fought them right to a standstill in Caledonia uh, simply by applying nonviolent peaceful means. We have to get the message out. We need a simple message. Let's not complicate it, guys. Do you accept the fact that the United Nations created Israel by a vote of the General Assembly? If you don't accept that, then I don't need to have a discussion with you. Now, I, we've only got a couple of minutes left, so it might be unfair to bring this issue up right now. But isn't it a little ironic that the UN, which created Israel, seems now to be, because of its constituent members, a great enemy of Israel and constantly supports policies opposed to Israel? And I also was thinking, Robert and I had this conversation the other day, it's also ironic that there are Arab states who are members of the United Nations who immediately following a UN vote chose to ignore it by attacking Israel. Now, the vote is considered consensus, but before you are allowed into the consensus, you must first consent. And that means in order to be a member, I would think, you'd have to play by the rules of the group that you are joining. So in other words, you consent in advance that whatever vote turns out, you're going to abide by it. Otherwise, you have no right to be a member of the UN. Mm -hmm. Is no one bringing this up? Like, is, is the UN useless if it votes for something and then its constituent members say, well, I'm not going to obey that. I'm just going to go and bomb X, Y, or Z. Why are they not immediately dismissed from the UN and condemned by the world community? Well, I think that's a really, that is a good argument. And right now, you have, um, the you know, there's a move afoot to try and have the UN declare Palestinians a, a nation. 
Uh, and I think to do that on the backs of these war crimes, and that's what Palestine, that's what the Hamas has committed against Israeli citizens, um, would legitimize the use of violence against innocents as a political tool. And I think that if the United Nations did that, that would be a crime against humanity. And I, I, could, I could, just couldn't support that. Yeah. Well, Mark, I've, the hour is gone. What do you know? Wow. Didn't even get to a fraction of the pile of stuff we've got in front of us here. Thank you for joining us again on, a, on another very contentious issue. And thank we hope you for to have your you vigil. back again sometime. And thank you for the vigil. And we'll keep in touch with you in terms of what happens in the future. But we've got to go now. And we hope that you, as our listeners, will continue to tune in each week. And we'll continue our journey in the right direction. See you again next week. Hey, you know Shalom. what to do. Shalom. <laughs> Shalom. Fade into color, color into black and white. Now we take you to our reporter at the UN for a fast-breaking story. Ruth, the turmoil here at the Security Council is indescribable. Not 20 minutes ago, for reasons not yet clear, war was declared between Scotland and Peru. Both countries' delegates are now meeting at an undisclosed location. Aye, laddie, aye. It worked. After years of going unnoticed, we finally got some attention. It was a good idea. I'm glad that I thought of it. You thought of it? I didn't like to differ, but it was my idea. You haven't had an idea since you got into the UN. Everybody knows that the Scotch are too cheap to give away an idea, even if they had one, which you didn't, the Scotchman. All right, all right, that's it. If you want to fight about it, the war is off. That's it. (laughs) 